This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National. Always great to have your company. Welcome to another episode of Between the Lines. Vladimir Putin's bloody assault on Ukraine has prompted the biggest rethinking of US foreign policy since, well, if not the end of the Cold War three decades ago, then certainly the September 11 terror attacks of 2001. Now, my first guest today says the Ukraine crisis should infuse America with a new sense of mission and redefine its strategic calculus with adversaries. Or, as Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison has described the China-Russia axis, quote, an arc of autocracy. Eli Lake is a contributing editor to Commentary Magazine in New York. Eli, welcome to ABC Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Now, your commentary story is called The World Has Changed and We Must Change Along With It. Uh, Tell us more. Well, uh, the idea behind this essay was um, to play out the long-term strategic implications, not just for the United States, but really for the free world, of which uh, Australia is such an important uh, member, obviously. And it is a look at trying to adjust and move on from many of the strategic assumptions uh, that guided kind of the West's management of the rules-based international system since the end of the Cold War. And in a nutshell, that was the belief, uh, the faith, that if the prosperous Western countries like Australia, Europe, the United States, uh, Japan, um, enticed China and Russia into uh, the World Trade Organization and other international institutions and uh, increased economic trade, uh, cultural trade, where you, cultural exchanges, where you saw, uh, you know, our universities opening up to, you know, the children of elites and things like that, that over time, two things we thought would happen. One would be that the same rules that constrain us uh, would constrain Russia and China, and that there would be, a, you know, that they, they would have buy-in to this system. And the second would be that over time, a prosperous middle class would be created in these countries that would begin to demand the freedoms that we have in the West uh, in their own societies. And that these things would happen over time. We just had to sort of let them evolve. Well, what I say very clearly in the essay is that this strategy has failed. Uh, Instead, Chinese and Russian elites Uh, sometimes we call them oligarchs when they're Russians, uh, have become fabulously wealthy. They have corrupted our our political systems, uh, not just in America, but in Australia and all over there. And they have not used their membership in the international uh, community, uh, the community of nations, uh, to restrain their behavior, but rather to undermine these systems themselves. And the reason why, in my view, February 24th invasion of Ukraine is a hinge moment and is so important is because this time Vladimir Putin did not even bother to try to mask his aggression with a kind of fig leaf of international legitimacy as he had in prior wars with Ukraine and Georgia. This time he 
invaded on an absolutely insane pretext that he was denazifying a country with an elected president who was Jewish. Uh, he gave that crazy speech last month in which he pined for the 19th century Romanov dynasty. This is as clear a message that I believe in some ways Putin has been sending to us for nearly two decades, that he has no interest in being a responsible member of the community of nations, that he is a threat to uh, this uh, rules-based order. And in order to protect that system, there are many important steps that we now have to take that will require a significant effort, economically, militarily, culturally. Okay, so the upshot here is that Western liberal engagement in the post-Cold War era with both Russia and China has failed, and you argue that in this new world, it's Putin's Russia. It's not part of the community of nations. It's a threat to the community of nations. I get that. Now, some guests on this program in recent times, Eli, I think of John Mearsheimer from Chicago, Kishore Mabulbani from Singapore, Mary Dejewski from London, they'd say that Moscow far from being bent on expansionism, is primarily concerned about protecting its vital strategic interests in its near abroad. And from the Kremlin's perspective, this is their argument, Ukraine as part of NATO represents an existential threat. How would you respond to that realist argument? Well, I think that there are several flawed assumptions there. The first is, if Putin cared about Russia's national interest, he would have been deterred by the very real threat before this war of uh, crippling sanctions, the likes of which the world has never seen. I believe that's the phrase that President Joe Biden used before the war in an effort to try to deter Vladimir Putin. Well, that tells me a very important thing about the motivation of this war. This is not in Russia's national interest. It is in Putin's very narrow interest, because as a tyrant, he has more than a need. He, he has to create a sense of crisis and external enemies. And that's why tyrants often start aggressive wars, because they become de facto rationalizations for their autocratic rule. And this gets to the second point about why I think the realists are wrong. Great flaw of realist kind of international relations theory is that they do not believe there are meaningful distinctions in terms of how, why explaining sta state behavior based on the composition or, the, or of, of, of how these societies organize themselves. So they don't believe that a liberal democracy or an autocracy would have different perceptions of their own national interests. And in that respect, that's just false because it is a direct threat to Putin's reign. Uh, if the Ukrainian experiment in flawed but nonetheless democratic government with successive elections, prosperous economy, trade with Europe, and uh, the beginning of a kind of liberalism, although, again, Ukraine is in a bit of a transition. If that succeeds, then that is an example for his own citizens who are kind of culturally cousins of Ukrainians because they have such a shared history that they may too start demanding these freedoms. So that is what's motivating him. The idea that a defensive alliance like NATO, which has bent over backwards since the end of the Cold War, to include Russia in its planning, to assure it that it has no 
designs on it for any aggressive reasons. Then look at it from the perspective of Ukraine or any of the states on the periphery of Russia today. They see Russia as a threat, which is why they are motivated to join NATO. Finally, I would just say one more thing about John Mearsheimer and the realists in this regard. It's, it's unrealistic to just assume that great powers can determine the outcome of countries like Ukraine without bothering to think or care about what Ukrainians themselves want. And what have we learned in this three weeks of war? Well, what we've learned is that even the Russian speakers who Vladimir Putin believed he was liberating do not want to be dominated by Russia. And they uh, too fought is, against is, the Russian army. Isn't this a key army. point, though, that doesn't the fact that Putin has miscalculated here and Russia is now bogged down in Ukraine, doesn't all that suggest that Russia is hardly the expansionist power people like you fear, Eli? Well, that's a good question, but the, you have to separate intention here from capabilities. The fact that Putin very badly miscalculated and failed to understand that Ukraine, in fact, was a real country and that there, even Russian-speaking Ukrainians did not welcome the Russian military is not, uh, does not tell us about uh, that, 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 that Putin is not a threat to his neighbors. It tells us that Putin uh, doesn't have anyone in his inner circle who's willing to speak truth to power. It tells us that Putin is willing to believe his own marketing materials. It tells us that the propaganda that we hear from the Kremlin can not only be pernicious in that, uh, you know, it, it, it deceives Russians and others who uh, believe it, but it can also deceive the people who are telling those lies. Now, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison calls the Russia-China alignment an arc of autocracy, and you dedicate a lot of time in your essay about the Russia-China relationship. But many scholars, Eli, say this is not a natural alliance because, among other things, they had those past cross-border tensions that led to the Sino-Soviet split at the height of the Cold War. So the question here is, why do you think this time it's different? Well, I, 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 I do think that uh, historically, and you can go back even further, you will find that there has been tensions between China and Russia, and there will probably be tensions in the future. But when it comes to this fundamental question about a world in which it is not okay to launch aggressive wars of conquest, which is what Vladimir Putin has just done, China has an interest in a world where it is okay to do such a thing because they have designs on Taiwan and they would like to dominate their region as well. And in that respect, they have a kind of common adversary. And that common adversary is the, the sort of American-led world order. And in that respect, in this particular conflict, they're kind of allies of convenience. But you raise a very good point, which is that um, in the same way that the five mafia families in the United States had a common interest in thwarting the FBI in the late 20th century, they also were vicious to one another because these are gangster regimes in many ways and gangsters <laughs> will eventually turn on one another. My guest is Eli Lake, a contributing editor to Commentary, and we're talking about his cover story for Commentary magazine, The World Has Changed and We Must Change Along With It. Eli, you, you call for a, a more expansive American foreign policy. You suggest that US defence spending should increase from roughly 3.5% of GDP to 5% of GDP. But what about the very real limits to power 
that those post 9-11 US-led wars in the Middle East exposed. Um, I mean, can America still exercise global leadership in all three theatres, Asia, Europe, and the Persian Gulf? Well, uh, that's an excellent uh, question, and I believe that you, we can, but more, more to the point, the reason for increasing the defense spending for the United States, in my view, has is not because the United States should seek to launch wars simultaneously with Russia and China. It is rather to deter China and Russia from launching wars that would require the United States to intervene. And so in order to do that, you have to make a greater commitment. And the object here is both deterrence, but also a concept called res of resilience. And that's very important as well. China has developed anti-satellite missiles, which would blind us in the event of a war. Well, if China just takes out important communication satellites, the United States and its allies need to have the capability to rapidly relaunch them into space so that we can get our global communication systems back online. That's one example. Another example of resilience is that China's uh, near monopoly in many of the rare earth minerals and rare earth metals necessary for everything from our you know, smartphones to, uh, you know, our, our, our guidance systems for uh, advanced fighter jets, that these materials uh, could be choked off and cripple our defense industries and other critical strategic industries. So we need to find a kind of uh, alternative supply chains for those kinds of material, become energy independent so that Russia is uh, no longer has the ability to blackmail Europe uh, with uh, its natural gas, its dependence on Russian natural gas. These are the kinds of steps that um, are beyond simply just a matter of defense spending, but it is about kind of protecting us from the kinds of leverage that China and Russia have as, as, we, as we drift into more of a Cold War. But what about, you know, you've had Donald Trump's America First mantra, uh, Bernie Sanders' isolationism, if you like, or, or a more restrained foreign policy. That's clearly gaining traction in the Democratic Party. And then there are those very real internal divisions, the toxic polarisation in Washington. I mean, don't all these domestic challenges sort of undermine your argument in that they could restrain America's ability to assert its will and leadership and influence in the face of Chinese and Russian intransigence, Eli Lake. Uh, they, well, they absolutely could, and I and I don't want to in any way minimize the threat that that this kind of disunity uh, and the la the lack of a, a kind of consensus national interest foreign policy. You are correct that that, that these divisions are uh, would would threaten this kind of strategy. But on the other hand, I would say this: I believe that the war that has just started has been something of a 9/11 moment for Europe and has certainly changed the politics of the United States so far as well. And what I would say is this, is that up until the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, America was largely an isolationist nation. But as soon as, uh, right after the date that will live in infamy, the leader of America first at the time, Charles Lindbergh, uh, volunteered for the, uh, the Air Force and uh, America first ceased to exist. So th th there is a power to events on the world stage like this that at least, in it, it, and I'm not saying it's guaranteed, but it, it has the ability to kind of wash away the bitter divisions from before. So in that respect, I think that 
the horror of this war, what Putin is trying to get away with, the threats of using chemical weapons, bombing maternity wards and hospitals and apartment buildings, and the images that are the gruesome images that come along with all of that, that is the kind of thing that I think you take a look at some of the divisions and some of the conversations that maybe America should stay out of things, and it sort of renders it, you know, at, at a certain point, irrelevant. Yes. And all the available public opinion polling in America suggests that this, this Russian invasion of Ukraine has really led to strong domestic support for a, a tough response. This is a fascinating point you're making because, Eli, it seems to me that for more than a decade under both Obama and Trump, scepticism about military intervention abroad, that's been steadily gaining ground. But with, and your point here is that with, with the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I mean, is it fair to say that this this belief in an unabashed assertion of US power abroad, if you like, democracy promotion, regime change, is it fair to say that all this that dominated a Bush foreign policy um, in the lead up to the Iraq invasion, it, has neoconservatism once again gained sway? Eli Lake. We're in a different geopolitical moment than after 9-11. I do think that the neoconservatives are, are kind of being vindicated in many ways because the neoconservatives have been warning about China and Russia now for a very long time. But the, the, the larger point is that it's not so much about, you know, America kind of launching regime change wars again like it did after 9-11. Rather, it's about regaining the kind of moral confidence that the, that the United States, if we're going to be realistic, is by no means a perfect union. America is not you know, it has made plenty of mistakes and flaws. There are plenty of crimes and sins like any other powerful country in history. But it is the best and the most humane alternative in terms of global leadership than anything else that is available. And uh, we take that kind of world and that that and and what comes along with that global leadership uh, for granted. And so we are now tested, and we have to fight for it. And in that respect, I do think that if you want to call that neoconservative or just American exceptionalism or Western exceptionalism, but that is something that I think has become relevant again, and it has become relevant again because the uh, enemies of that world order have let the mask slip and shown their grotesque face for the world to see. Okay, but the unipolar world that the leading neoconservative commentator Charles Krauthammer coined in the early 1990s, and that's really shaped international politics, at least for the first quarter century after the collapse of the Soviet Union. That unipolar world has come to an end. We're seeing more yes. an increasingly multipolar world. It's three great powers. Does it hurt the US to be in competition with two great powers like China and Russia joined at the hip? Well, I, I, again, you know, if it, was, if it was entirely up to me, it would be great to try to play them off of one another, which has sort of been American strategy since Nixon and Kissinger opened mm -hmm, the United mm -hmm. States relationships with communist China. My argument is not that it's better to be in conflict with both China and Russia. My argument is that it is unrealistic in the short to medium term to expect cooperation with China against Russia or to expect uh, ex or to expect cooperation with Russia against China, and that what we should be preparing ourselves for is that China and Russia will be cooperating against us. And that is not because we have failed strategically. It is because they have an interest 
and undermining the things that we believe are essential in the world order. And we have to accept that even though, yes, in an ideal situation, we would try to play China off of Russia. And perhaps such an opportunity will arise later on, but that opportunity is not here right now. Eli, great to have you on ABC Radio. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Eli Lake, a contributing editor to Commentary Magazine, and we'll put on our homepage a link to his Commentary Magazine cover story. It's called The World Has Changed and We Must Change Along With It. If you just tuned in, you're on Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Up next, did Barack Obama's appeasement of Putin in Syria just embolden the bloody Assad regime? Well, there's plenty of explanations as to why Vladimir Putin made his fateful decision to send Russian troops into Ukraine. Maybe it's as simple as he thought he could get away with it, like he's done on so many occasions before. So far, unlike in Ukraine, Putin's intervention in Syria in 2015, well, it could be argued to be a strategic success. Russian support to the Assad regime, after all, was crucial in determining that outcome. And to help us remember those events and its significance, I welcome to the program Anna Borshevskaya. Anna is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute, where she focuses on Russia's policy toward the Middle East. And Anna is author of Putin's War in Syria, Russian Foreign Policy and the Price of America's Absence. It's published by Bloomsbury. Anna, welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Now, what can you tell us about Russia's historic relationship with the East Mediterranean region, and in particular, Damascus? So historically, for most of Russia's existence as an independent polity, and especially starting uh, from Peter the Great, uh, Russia sought to be uh, a great power in particularly in Europe. And in that regard, the Eastern Mediterranean played an absolutely key role. In the West, we tend to separate European and Middle East theaters, but if you look at it from the Russian state perspective, historically, the Russian state felt most vulnerable at what it's called its uh, south underbelly, and that includes the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, Central Asia, and the Caucasus. Uh, And in order to be a great power, especially to play a great power in Europe, Russia needed that military position on the Eastern Mediterranean, along with the Black Sea, of course, and the Caspian and the Sea of Azov. Uh, the, The Russian state simply Look at it all as looked at it as one unit. Uh, there are certainly many elements um, of Putin's foreign policy that are unique to him, that are tactical and transactional, but others have long-lasting residence to any Russian policymaker, and they will outlive Putin as well. That explains why Moscow had very close relations with the Assad regime, not just this Assad, but his father for the last half century, right? That's absolutely right. Uh, Syria was an absolutely crucial strategic country with its location on the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, also bordering Lebanon, Israel. Simply, The geographic location of this country alone was incredibly important. There were certainly other interests as well when it came to energy and so forth, uh, the Ba'ath Party regime, but really it was Syria's geostrategic position that the Kremlin had pursued during the Cold War. In fact, during the Cold War, Syria emerged as 
really the closest Arab, you can call it ally or, or client state. Soviet broadcasts specifically referred to Syrians and friends and allies. Uh, they singled them out the way they would not talk about other, uh, other nations in the region. Now, fast forward to 2011. This is the so-called Arab Spring. There's a widespread view in the West, especially in Washington and London and France, that the Assad regime's days were numbered. Then we go to 2015, and it does indeed look like the Assad regime's days are numbered. Um, tell us more about that situation, because the Islamic State Sunni jihadists in 2015, as I recall, they were on the march. Anna. That's right. That's right. And at that time, indeed, it seemed that um, Assad's days were numbered. It was uh, in several years before, in 2013, it was actually the Iranian government that saved Assad once from a, from an eminent demise. But that, but all analysis predicted that Assad was about to fall. And uh, Vladimir Putin uh, did something very important in 2013. Uh, if you recall, President Obama drew a famous red line when it came to use of uh, chemical weapons by the Assad regime as a uh, as a valid reason for military intervention. Assad did use chemical weapons, and rather than enforce the red line. The Obama administration had allowed itself to be convinced that Russia would make a deal to remove these weapons instead and thereby uh, avoid an intervention. The, the problem is uh, that uh, first, Assad's chemical uh, weapon, weapons attacks continued over the years, albeit on smaller scale. There were doubts that we really, from the beginning, that Russia really got rid of, of the chemical weapons arsenal. Uh, Putin annexed uh, Crimea the next year and went into Syria the following year. And of course, the world saw that the United States would not follow through on a threat. And uh, long story short, Putin came in and very quickly with a limited uh, targeted intervention saved Assad from an imminent fall. Rather than get stuck in a quagmire that President Obama had predicted, he established an a strategically vital position, mil a permanent military position on the Eastern Mediterranean in addition to saving the Assad regime. This is all very important. So the West, generally speaking, is strongly supporting, um, with this Arab Spring, popular liberal democratic movements. And at the same time, Obama's very dismissive of Putin's intervention, saying that Russia would find itself in a quagmire, as you just uh, outlined. That didn't happen. Why didn't Russia find itself in a quagmire the way it potentially will in Ukraine? What, what was the difference between Syria and Ukraine? Yeah, and I go into a lot more details uh, of this in my book, but in short, analysts looking at the Syria intervention immediately assumed that this will be just like the Soviet ex experience in Afghanistan. But, but the military intervention was precisely designed to avoid another Afghanistan. It was a target it primarily focused on aerospace forces with a naval component and limited elite ground troop contingent. It relied on lots of other actors to do heavy lifting, chiefly Iran. So uh, really the brunt of the work and the costs were borne by Iran, not Russia. What Russia did is it quickly quickly unveiled something called A2AD uh, layout, anti-area access denial layout, precisely to deter the, the West rather than fight the Islamic State, as was the purported Putin's purported reason for going into Syria. Um, uh, again, it was a very limited targeted intervention designed to be low cost and relying on others to do the work. In, in Ukraine, what we see happening is a, a colossal miscalculation. Uh, and at first, uh, it's clear that the scale of the invasion is far bigger than anything uh, that Putin's Russia had done, uh, certainly bigger than in Syria. He went for all of Ukraine. Think about it, going after the largest all-European country 
uh, a country of over 40 million, about 44 million, to, to think that it can fall in two days, which apparently is what, what the Kremlin had expected, it, that is a massive, massive miscalculation based on hubris. So what's happening now in, instead is an incredibly costly intervention, but it is, cost, it is costing everybody. And it's not over by a long shot. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer, and my guest is Anna Borshevskaya. She's a senior fellow at the Washington Institute and author of Putin's War in Syria, Russian Foreign Policy and the Price of America's Absence. Anna, let me push back here. You're critical of the American response to Russia's intervention in Syria, but if we go back to August, September 2015, when the Assad regime was on the cusp of collapsing, if it weren't for the Russian intervention to prop up the Assad regime, wasn't the alternative Sunni jihadists in the name of Islamic State controlling Damascus? Anna. Well, that's certainly the that that's certainly the, the the narrative also that that Vladimir Putin had put forth. And in fact, if you looked at Russian airstrikes in Syria after Russia intervened in September two thousand fifteen, uh, they were going after uh, moderate opposition, and there was still moderate opposition. So it is a bit simplistic to say that it was only the Islamic State and uh, and Al Nusra groups that 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 was the only choice. It is that is how Putin wanted everybody to see it, and in fact. What Putin had actually conducted in Syria was not a counterterrorism organization, but a counterinsurgency uh, operation. They targeted basically anybody who was anti-Assad and had a weapon, including uh, hospitals were fair game. Uh, Putin, uh, along with the Assad regime, uh, specifically targeted hospitals and other civilian targets to demoralize the population and basically bomb them into submission. Putin also simply helped exacerbate the existing refugee flows out of Syria to pressure Europe into a dialogue on Putin's terms. So it is a little bit, uh, look, Syria was incredibly complicated. Um, and I mentioned in my book, not, not even uh, the previous war in Bosnia in the 1990s, probably compared to the multitude of actors uh, involved. But having said that, um, it was not a simple choice uh, in August 2015 of either ISIS or Assad. It's what Putin wanted okay, to do. Okay. But the, the Sunni resistance or the Sunni rebellion that the Americans and the Brits and the French were supporting, didn't that morph into various Sunni jihadist groups, including Islamic State? So faced between two evils, between the Assad regime and Sunni jihadists, didn't it make sense for Russia and indeed America to support the Assad regime? Anna? Right. So first of all, uh, Assad regime has also been known to support radical Sunni fighters. And in fact, both this is something that both Russia and um, Assad actually shared. When uh, foreign fighters uh, crossed uh, from Syria uh, into Iran, uh, Iraqi territory in the previous years, before b- before 2015, uh, Russia simply looked, looked the other way. Simply put, if Putin really wanted to fight ISIS and other radical Sunni groups, uh, this would have been an absolutely welcome uh, uh, outcome for everyone. The problem was he was simply not targeting ISIS with any uh, consistency. Most of Russia's airstrikes were simply not against ISIS. And Assad himself uh, first is 
um, served served as a chief. First of all, served as a chief recruiting tool. So his brutality served as a chief recruiting tool for radical jihadists uh, in the first place. In terms of sheer numbers of uh, people killed, uh, Assad was also responsible for simply more deaths than ISIS. Of course, ISIS had to be targeted, but Russia was simply not doing that. And Anna, you are quite right about the Assad regime. I mean, the the, the human rights record, the the mass killings, that the, they, they're, they're much larger than that committed by Sunni jihadists and the so-called Sunni rebellion. But did Putin pay a price? And this is really the issue in your book. Did he pay a price? Did the Americans punish Putin for supporting this bloody Assad regime? Unfortunately, no. No, Putin did not pay a price, just as he did not pay a price for his uh, war in Georgia, uh, annexing Crimea. Uh, He certainly did not pay a price. To the contrary, he earned, um, I would say, begrudged respect uh, from the region in a sense that not because many supported what he did, but because he simply said what he set out to do, whereas the West, by contrast, dithered and said Assad must go when when push came to shove, did did not make that happen. Uh, So uh, having the strategic position, uh, you know, to go back to your earlier question from when it comes to history, never before had Russia established a, a permanent military presence in this region. It always tried Catherine the Great uh, attempted to occupy Be- uh, occupied Beirut for about two years. But um, uh, not only did he not uh, pay a price, he extracted uh, a number of benefits. My guest is Anna Borshevskaya, and she's author of a terrific book called Putin's War in Syria, Russian Foreign Policy and the Price of America's Absence. Anna, let's wrap this up bringing this discussion to the present, there is talk of Syrian mercenaries assisting the Russian army in Ukraine. How significant is that? You know, at this stage, it's hard to see just how significant it is in terms of what difference it could make and uh, how, how big are these numbers. But it is significant in the sense that first, Putin is using every tool he has in his arsenal. And uh, I'm sorry to say this, unfortunately, these people are simply cannon fodder. Uh, That's what this is. And sometimes you simply need the numbers. Uh, Again, there are a lot of unanswered questions here in terms of how well equipped uh, these individuals are in terms of fighting, uh, how many of them really are there and and so forth. But it simply shows you once again that He's using everything he can to buy time. Uh, and again, sometimes you just need numbers. Okay. Now, finally, with the, the Assad victory in the civil war, the Russian victory in the Syrian civil war, and with the Taliban emerging victorious in the Afghanistan conflict, the United States has made a strategic decision, at least before Ukraine, to reorder its strategic priorities away from the Persian Gulf, focus more on the Asia-Pacific as a way of hedging against a rising and expansionist China. What might a reduced U.S. interest in the Middle East mean for the region? First, the region has already felt a reduced uh, American uh, presence in the region, both real and perceived, Uh, going back uh, approximately a decade, really ever since President Obama announced uh, the U.S. pivot to Asia. What this means is the region feels uncertain and it, it hedges on the uncertainty uh, of U.S. policy, basically looking to build relationships with other great powers to diversify their foreign policy. And you're seeing that all across the region uh, right now. It, uh, Afghanistan, of course, uh, the debacle of Afghanistan played a, a very important role in this perception. And by the way, it also fueled Putin's confidence. 
uh, in, in the invasion uh, of Ukraine because he perceived American credibility severely damaged globally. Uh, having said that, um, again, what you're seeing is these countries are have, have been diversifying for years and uh, Afghanistan has especially convinced them that this is the right thing to do. So uh, you're, uh, you're also seeing, by the way, uh, you're seeing how they're reacting to the Ukraine crisis. They're very careful about not getting too involved and really walking a fine line because, uh, again, this is uh, they no longer perceive the United States um, in the position that it was as, as a global leader. Anna, this has been a fascinating discussion. We all too often indulge, quite understandably, in the parochialism of the present when we're dealing with the Ukraine crisis, but you've put this crisis in an important context, uh, Russia's intervention in Syria. Anna, thank you so much for being on ABC Radio. It is my pleasure. Thanks for, ha- thanks for having me. That was Anna Borshevskaya, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute, where she focuses on Russia's policy towards the Middle East. Anna is author of Putin's War in Syria, Russian Foreign Policy and the Price of America's Absence. That's published by Bloomsbury. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, what might the last governor of Hong Kong, Christopher Patton, and the human rights activist and barrister, Julian Birdside, what might they have in common? Well, they've both delivered the Malcolm Fraser Oration. Established in 2017 by the University of Melbourne, the lecture honours and remembers our 22nd Prime Minister, and it explores ideas around his vision for Australia, his support for multiculturalism, human rights, and free speech. Now, the 2022 oration was recently delivered by Jeff Raby, who many of you may know from past performances on this program and other episodes in Radio National. He was our ambassador to the People's Republic of China from 2007 to 2011. Jeff Raby now heads a Beijing-based strategic advisory firm and is the author of China's Grand Strategy and Australia's Future in a New Global Order. We spoke about that about a year ago. Jeff, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. Great to be back. Malcolm Fraser, a man of many layers, is a dominant figure in our political history. He's difficult to stereotype and he's sometimes hard to pin down. What's your impression? Well, I agree with all of that. And frankly, uh, I regretted uh, at first um, accepting the very kind invitation to give the Malcolm Fraser oration. I struggled for the best part of a year trying to work out what to say about him, how to place him, precisely for the point you have just made, Tom. He's extremely difficult to simply categorise and, 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 and certainly not stereotype, that's for sure. Yes, well, many, many of my conservative friends, uh, they, uh, they had looked sadly over the past three years of his life because they, they felt that he had rather emulated the British Prime Minister, uh, Edward Heath, in, in starting off as something of a man on the right and, and then ending up as anything but. But not everything uh, Fraser espoused was wrong and, and some political questions transcend party and even ideology. We'll get to the question of foreign policy very soon, Jeff. but on white Australia, I mean, it really came to an end uh, in the mid to late 60s under Harold Holt. It's a bipartisan policy. Um, but it was Malcolm Fraser. He first tested it. Uh, tell us about his position and his response to the Vietnamese refugees uh, in the mid to late 1970s. For sure. The guy looking at Malcolm uh, in this period, it's quite, quite clear he uh, uh, was a very generous humanitarian without a racist fibre in his body. 
And of course, you know, it was the Whitlam government that gave formal uh, end to the White Australia policy, but Malcolm gave it actual practical effect. Um, he uh, boldly and and very much uh, against the advice of uh, the Immigration Department and his ministers at the time, uh, opened Australia to refugees from Cambodia and Laos, Indochina more generally. And when challenged on this, he said, we have a moral obligation, a moral responsibility. He said, these people fought next to us, alongside us, uh, in the Vietnam War and in Indochina, and that we have a moral obligation to accept them into Australia. He gave effect to the White Australia policy because of the, the numbers that came in, and he forever changed the ethnic uh, composition of Australia, as uh, any quick tram ride around Richmond uh, in Melbourne would show you. Indeed. And, and what might Malcolm Fraser have done then in response to the refugees fleeing not just Afghanistan, but Ukraine? Well, certainly on Afghanistan, uh, he would have exactly the same moral position. These people uh, fought alongside us, served us, acted as interpreters, helped our effort in, in Afghanistan, and we would have an unambiguous moral obligation uh, to take as many of the Afghans who work with Australia uh, in as refugees uh, as, who want to come. And I think Ukraine would be a similar proposition for Malcolm. Uh, he opposed tyranny everywhere, and he would see uh, the people of Ukraine as victims of gross tyranny and violence and would have risen to the same humanitarian challenge. But I, I want to say on this, it's quite interesting. He also... Uh, believed in trying to work with coalitions of like-minded governments. So whereas with Afghanistan, I would believe he would see that we had a unilateral moral obligation, I think with Ukraine, he'd be very active in middle power diplomacy, trying to encourage other countries uh, to open their, their borders and welcome Ukrainian refugees wherever they are in the world. And I think this was something that really struck me when I um, started delving into him for the lecture, that he had a strong belief in the idea of Australia as an activist middle power that could make the world better by working with other countries uh, and, 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 and forming coalitions uh, around some of the great issues of the, of the time. He wrote about a wide range of issues, and we'll get to Asia now, and go back to 1976, um, Jeff. This is quite intriguing. He's a new Prime Minister, having knocked off uh, Gough Whitlam in a landslide election. Now, most Prime Ministers would traditionally visit Washington or London on their first trips, especially in those days, but tell us, where does Malcolm Fraser go and why? Yeah, Malcolm, Malcolm goes to Tokyo and Beijing. Um, yeah. And it was remarkable to be reminded of that. And I'm glad uh, we have a chance to talk about it now. He had a clear vision that Australia's uh, future was in the uh, East Asian region. Uh, Tokyo isn't so surprising because uh, uh, the UK only three years earlier had uh, joined the European common uh, market, which meant that overnight we lost our export markets. I mean, the, the, the action of the UK in some ways was far more dramatic than anything China's done to us uh, in recent years with its economic coercion. So we had a very serious economic challenge. And Fraser, um, Fraser actually um, had the vision that Japan could be a significant market for Australia, which of course it became. And that also, the, his courage needs to be seen in, a, in, in the context of the older generation of Australians at the time were still getting over uh, their animosity towards uh, Japan arising from the Second World War. 
So we often forget the context in which these things were done, and it was a very courageous move by Fraser, but it made yeah, a lot of sense. That's Japan, but why that's China? Japan. I mean, it was poor exactly. and inward-looking. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and in those days, for you know, diplomats and so on, uh, uh, China was just a boutique interest. And it was still in the Cultural Revolution and was inward-looking, fearful, frightened, um, isolated. Um, and, and Fraser went there with a the vision that China would be a significant player in the region and we wouldn't have a stable, uh, prosperous region that was secure for Australia unless China was brought into the region as a uh, serious actor. And, and in a sense, he had great, great for, uh, foresight. Yes, and when Mao Zedong died, I think later that year in 76, under Fraser's leadership, the parliament stood for a moment, so, a, a minute's silence in honour of Mao Zedong. There were four Labor and coalition backbenchers who, um, who opposed the initiative, but it obviously meant a lot to Fraser. Now, tell us about Fraser's transition from foreign policy ideologue to foreign policy realist, because, of course, in the 50s and 60s and throughout the 70s, he was seen as a coal warrior, um, but in the mid to late 70s, early 80s, he became more of a foreign policy realist. Tell us about that transition, Jeff. Yeah, it's a remarkable transition. Um, I, I say in the, I say in the, um, in the oration that uh, my first brush, if you like, with Malcolm Fraser was as a uh, student anti-war protester uh, <laughs> marching uh, up and down the streets uh, of uh, central Melbourne, and he was a loathsome figure to us in those days. Uh, he was minister for the army, and the Vietnam War was immoral and illegal, and uh, he was a great proponent of it. But I think first and foremost was the American withdrawal from Vietnam. Mm -hmm, and it, mm -hmm. made, it, it made him think about America retreating uh, across the Pacific. And um, I think he saw in American actions from then on uh, what he regarded as uh, the potential to be an unreliable ally. Uh, how far can you rely on the United States for your Australian security? And later on, he developed the notion of strategic dependence. I mean, it, it's, it's not dissimilar to uh, uh, the later concept that Alan Gingell coined, uh, uh, fear of abandonment. But it all comes to the same point, and that is Australia can't, in Fraser's view, rely on a great power to guarantee our security. We have to do it ourselves through hardening our defences and at the same time, work with regional neighbours and partners to build coalitions uh, that will maintain stability in our region. So this was a, a, a significant transition. Uh, and of course, by the end, as you correctly say, uh, he ended up regarding the United States as a dangerous ally. Mm, indeed. That was the title of his 2014 book, uh, which in a way was his last testament and will, Dangerous Allies in 2014. That's right, yeah. It's interesting in that book, though, it's like a lot of these titles, they don't quite uh, tell you what's in the book. He does develop, uh, with a great deal of thought, this concept of, uh, of uh, strategic dependence. And yes. More and more relevant today than it ever was. Now, my, yes, well, uh, that, that's certainly one way of putting it. And, and certainly, if you, if, you know, in my memory of his argument too, Jeff, is that in an inherently unequal relationship, between, you know, a great power like the United States and a middle power like ourselves, we, that is Australia, we're becoming so enmeshed in US strategy as to lose our, our autonomy. He made that point several times, I think, in that book, Dangerous yeah. Allies. But here's, here's something to ponder. I mean, it's certainly difficult to see how our unconditional and our unqualified support for those US-led wars 
after 9-11 served the national interest. I get that. But when Fraser called for an independent foreign policy, Jeff, is that just essentially another way of saying that the alliance should be abandoned? No, I, I don't think that was his point. But I thought he, my, my sense is because we have the US basis, we, we pay our dues heavily, uh, which is often not part of the current public discourse. It's not as if we are not an incredibly valuable asset for the US in terms of its security and providing broader public goods of security in the region. I think he um, was looking for more strategic space or foreign policy independence. Uh, but it does not mean, as some people suggest, that when one calls for a more independent foreign policy, you're talking about ending the alliance. I mean, I'm a great proponent of a more independent foreign policy, but I set out in my book how uh, there's, there's, there's space for both and it's not, it's not mutually inconsistent to have a strong defence relationship with the United States but have a more independent position. I think we saw it very much uh, in the Hawke, Keating, and even up until 2001, the 9-11 attacks uh, in the Howard period. Yes, and that brings us to the deteriorating relationship between Canberra and Beijing. I mean, you you deal with this in your uh, speech about how Fraser would have dealt with these this this deteriorating relationship. Now, Fraser, as you've made very clear, was a strong proponent of human rights, um, but he was also a believer in accommodating China's rise. Big supporter of engagement. How then do you think? Fraser would have approached these key issues, Jeff, human rights and the treatment of the Uyghurs, Hong Kong and Taiwan. Let's do one at a time. First, the Uyghurs. Yeah, I think it's really good to do one at one a time, Tom. I don't think it's helpful to roll them all in together as mm-hmm. if they're one of the same set of issues because they're not very different. So I think with the Uyghurs, um, uh, Fraser would understand that the principal concern of Beijing, it's not about ethnicity or religion. Uh, it is principally about peripheral security. As a realist, he would see that the problem Beijing has is they're worried about Islamic radical uh, radicalization uh, uh, of, of Islamic Uyghurs um, through the porous borders and so on. So I think what he would probably do would be, obviously he would be making representations to Beijing because unlike us today, he would have maintained uh, open conversations with Beijing. Uh, and you could say, well, Beijing shut, shut it down, but there were steps that led to Beijing shutting it down. That wouldn't have happened, I don't think, under Fraser, but he would have been looking to find coalitions, first of all, that could establish um, what is really going on, and secondly, uh, that could put pressure. Those coalitions should, uh, given the Islamic composition of the Uyghur population, involve uh, Islamic states, uh, but they have been very silent to date. And I think he would have looked to Indonesia as a principal partner in that uh, coalition building. What about uh, China's the- crackdown on the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think he would probably take uh, uh, the view that it was an issue between London and Beijing, that when London ceded a sovereignty over Hong Kong in July 1997, Hong Kong became an integral part of Chinese sovereign territory, just like Tasmania, for argument's sake, is is, is for Australia. Um, he would have urged caution, uh, restraint. Uh, he would have um, uh, warned China that uh, uh, bad behaviour is likely to produce the consequences you're trying to avoid. But I don't think he would have been 
uh, willingly going along in some Westminster coalition of Anglophone countries to condemn Beijing uh, for basically maintaining the territorial integrity of China. Okay, finally, Taiwan. Fraser was a senior minister in Bill McMahon's government when Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger signed the Shanghai communique about 50 years ago. Stri- uh, st- strategic ambiguity, if you like. What would Fraser say about Taiwan today? Well, I think Fraser would urge a continuation of the status quo, as you said, strategic ambiguity. Um, he most definitely wouldn't have been writing a uh, any sort of blank check that Australia would support um, military uh, would be involved militarily if there was a conflict between China and the United States uh, over Taiwan, as it is, as it has always been, and as it should be today, um, our position on that question, a very important question, is um, uh, that would depend on the circumstances in which conflict uh, occurred between China and Taiwan, or China made a, a unilateral move to somehow absorb Taiwan. Um, so. Uh, it would be a continuation of strategic ambiguity, but I think he would be giving the United States a very clear message, and I think that's important as a good friend of the United States, that there will be circumstances in which we may be there, but there will also be circumstances in which we won't be there. And the United States should not assume uh, anything about Australia's future behaviour. Jeff, as always, great to have you on Between the Lines. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. That's Jeff Raby, former Australian ambassador to China. He's the author of China's Grand Strategy and Australia's Future in a New Global Order. That's published by Melbourne University Press. And we'll post the link to the full video of Jeff Raby's 2022 Fraser Oration that's presented by the University of Melbourne. We'll put that on the Between the Lines homepage. Well, thanks for your company today, and remember to hear this or past episodes, including my recent exchange with former Trump National Security Advisor, John Bolton. If you'd like to hear that or past episodes, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines, or of course, you can just go to the ABC Listen app, where you can download us for free or wherever you get your shows online. I'm Tom Switzer and hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.